we are we are still looking at political theology tonight. We're still very much in that series. We've already seen over the last several weeks, obviously with the last two Sunday evenings being an exception as Pastor Chris was here, but over the five previous Sunday nights, we've already seen that there are two kingdoms. The common kingdom and the kingdom of Christ. Now these are roughly parallel to state and church, respectively. And though in Old Covenant Israel, the state and the church were officially connected, that has been the exception rather than the rule with respect to other nation states. And it is that way by God's design. The way that God set up Old Covenant Israel was typological, typological, of Christ's coming kingdom in which the kingship and the priesthood will be united in perfect harmony. However, God endorses the legitimacy of the state irrespective of whether the state is godly or ungodly, whether the state operates with a biblical worldview or not, whether it actually succeeds in achieving civic good or not. Be careful to hear me say, not that God endorses everything the state does, but that God endorses the legitimacy of the state's jurisdiction uh, over the civic sphere, irrespective of whether it is a godly or ungodly, whether it has biblical worldview or not, etc. The state is a provision that God has made to preserve even secular lives and secular societies until the day of judgment when the wheat and the weeds will be separated, to use the language of Jesus' parable. And God, in fact, does not want the state to interfere in church matters beyond what is required simply for civic good. Stuff like noise violations, parking regulations, building codes, public health policies, etc. Though those things are within the state's legitimate jurisdiction, God does not want the state to interfere in religious matters beyond those things. And this is because God has not given authority over the substance of the church's work and worship to the civic rulers of society. They are not in charge of what happens in the church. Rather, under God, it is the ecclesiastical or the church leaders who have authority over the substance of the church's work and worship. So the modern state doesn't actually have warrant to govern religious affairs within its jurisdiction other than uh, with respect to the civic good of society. So for example, things like child sacrifice may rightly be prohibited by the state. But beyond what is warranted, for civic good, the state simply just does not have authority to impose on religious uh, beliefs within its jurisdiction. So the modern state doesn't have warrant to govern the worship of the church, neither according to scripture, which is the case I've just made, nor according to natural law. So things like we, we can recognize even apart from biblical revelation, we can recognize the desirability and the reasonableness of man who has to 
who has a, a sense of the divine having to stand and give an account for his beliefs and for his worship to God, not being forced to do something contrary to his religious convictions. And so freedom of religion is not only warranted by the scriptures, but is also established simply by natural law as well. Yet just as the state does not have authority to delegitimize the church or, or frankly other religious groups either, likewise or conversely, neither does the church have authority to delegitimize the state. Now again, hear me carefully, that doesn't mean that the church has no authority to say that the state's wrong or that the state is sinful, but the, the church simply cannot delegitimize the legitimate jurisdiction of the state. Instead, the church and the state exist separately. The kingdom of Christ exists within and amongst the common kingdom, almost as a embassy exists in and amongst a host country. We as Christians, if we push that metaphor, are dual citizens both of the host country as well as of the nation that is represented by the embassy here in the midst of the host country, so to speak. This doctrine of two kingdoms and separation of church and state has been addressed and established more thoroughly in previous sermons. So I won't review these concepts at length tonight if anyone's hearing this for the first time and you're wondering about it or object to it or you want to hear more, go back and listen to the first five sermons that I've preached on this subject. But I remind you of these things tonight because I will assume them, and it's important to, to get them fresh in our minds as we get into the body of our study tonight. And tonight I want to present you with a glorious glimpse of the future taken from the prophet Zechariah. But before we even get to that, I want to remind you of an important point of order pertaining to Old Covenant Israel. And it's, it's simply this. Though the kingship and the priesthood were connected by God's design and were both sanctioned by God and there was therefore a state religion in Old Covenant Israel, nevertheless, the kingship and the priesthood were separate. That's the simple point I just want to remind you of. The kingship and the priesthood were separate. You will recall in 1 Samuel 13 that Saul is waiting for Samuel to arrive. And the Philistines have gathered for war and, and drawn up their battle lines and Saul's getting impatient. And he waited the seven days appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from Saul. People are seeing the Philistine army gather and they're like, no, we're out of here, man. Samuel's nowhere to be seen. We're disorganized. We're not ready. We're leaving. So they, people started gathering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, 
I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. So the king offers a sacrifice and it's not legitimate. It's not acceptable. Second Chronicles further illustrates this point. Isaiah was king over Judah. And we read in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 4 that Isaiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So he was a pretty good king. But when he was strong, 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16 says, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Isaiah and said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. So we see here that even when kings offer the right sacrifices to the Lord from reasonably sincere hearts, not necessarily vindicating all their motives, but there seems to be something legitimate to their motives here. Nevertheless, the fact that they are not priests delegitimizes their sacrifice and actually makes it sin. So the kings and the priests though both sanctioned by God, were not the same and could not just overlap in their functions. All right? Now, many years later, coming out of exile from Babylon, it is the period of rebuilding the temple which had been destroyed in the Babylonian conquest. We're about just over 500 years before the birth of Christ Jesus in later Old Testament times. Zechariah introduces us to a character simply called the branch. Now, even before we look at Zechariah, who do you think the branch might be? Ah, we have some astute theologians in our midst who recognize that all things in Scripture testify of Him. Right, the branch is going to be Jesus. So this is a title for Jesus. This is a title for the Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 read like this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now even before we get to Zechariah, what we see in, in Jeremiah is this prophecy of the branch coming to do messianic work. 
coming to do the work of the Messiah. Right? So we know that the branch is the Messiah. Now, he is going to reign as king, verse 5 of Jeremiah 23 says, and verse 6 of Jeremiah 23 tells us that this is the name by which he, the branch, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, who, or, or let me put it this way, which office makes people righteous? The, the kingly office? The prophetic office? The priestly office? Right? It is the priestly office which makes people righteous in the Old Testament sacrificial system. You want to get clean? You want to get righteous? You don't go to the king. You don't go to the prophet. You go to the priest. So right away we see in Jeremiah 23 there is this man coming called the branch who rules as a king and also makes the people righteous. Which implies what? That he's also going to function as a priest. Now, Zechariah picks up on that title and this language. And in Zechariah chapter 3, we are introduced to the branch as a priest. Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, this, this Joshua is a real historical figure, just a man named Joshua. So this is not Yeshua, Jesus. This is just a guy, Joshua, who's the high priest at the same time of Zechariah. And Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And here's the problem. Joshua is in dirty clothes. Now you will recall from when we studied the priestly garments that you couldn't just wear whatsoever you pleased to go work and, and do the priestly work in the tabernacle. Rather, to the contrary, there were very clearly prescribed garments which had to be put on in a certain way and had to be just so. So here's a big problem. The high priest is standing inadequately clothed before the Lord. And Satan is accusing him. Hey, he's got dirty clothes. He shouldn't be here. This is not right. Now, what happens in the vision that Zechariah sees is that the dirty clothes are taken off of Joshua and clean clothes are put on him. Alright, now, I've preached on this section before, but because we have to go on to chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 14, I'm not going to expound this at length. But let me just highlight this. In Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Okay, so the gist of what's happening here, and I don't have time to unfold this thoroughly and exhaustively, but there's this object lesson here where even the holiest man in the camp, which is the high priest, is not holy enough. And even he needs to be purified. Even he needs to be made righteous. Even he needs to be cleansed. Even he needs a priest. Okay? So, 
All of this, what happens in Zechariah chapter 3, is a sign. It's an it's a enactment of a spiritual truth, which is that there is a priest for Joshua. There is a priest for the holiest man in Israel. There is a priest above whom and for whom there is no other earthly person above and for. And the guy who is the priest for Joshua is the branch. So we're introduced to the branch who is a priest in Zechariah chapter 3. Now, Zechariah says more about the branch. In chapter 6, Zechariah introduces us to the branch as king. The word of the Lord came to me. That's Zechariah. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. Okay, so these, these rich returned exiles have come back from Babylon and they got fat wallets and Zechariah's job is to go to these guys who are pretty wealthy and well off get money from them and make a crown. Now, what is he to do with the crown? Verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 6. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. Now who's, who is Joshua? He's the high priest. Set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helen, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. So there's a lot loaded in there. I'm going to briefly exposit what's happening here in this section. But basically, here's the reenactment, and then we'll talk about the symbolism of it. The reenactment is this. They're to, to go to these wealthy returned exiles, get some money from them, use the money to make a crown. Then they're to take the crown and put it on the head of a priest. Once the reenactment's over, they're not to just discard the crown or just let Joshua keep it as a token of that special day, but they're to take that crown and they're to go put it in the temple of the Lord as a reminder of what all of this symbolizes. Now, what does all of this symbolize? Again, it has to do with the branch. We remember from chapter 3 that the branch is a priest. A priest for the priest. A priest par excellence. The consummate, the ultimate priest. 
What happens here in, in Zechariah chapter 6 is the crowning of a priest, which is a sign of the crowning of the branch. It is he, verse 13 of Zechariah chapter 6, the branch, who shall build the temple of the Lord. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. You are being built together as holy stones. Right? This, is, this is the work of Christ Jesus being foreshadowed here. It is he who shall rebuild the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. Okay, so he is not only going to be a priest, but he is going to be a king and be honored as such. And he shall sit and rule on his throne. Whose throne? Listen to the sentence again and catch this. It is he, the branch, who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Whose throne? The Lord's throne. So this branch is a priest who will be crowned and then sit on the Lord's throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. That is the Lord's throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So the Lord who says, my glory I share with no other, is going to let a king and a priest come and sit on his throne. And there's going to be a council of peace between the Lord and this king priest who comes and sits on the Lord's throne. The Lord's going to be okay with this. There's going to be a council of peace between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the priest who has been crowned and who sits on the Lord's throne. This king and priest is allowed to sit on God's throne. There is a council of peace between them. In spite of the fact that God says, my glory I will not share with another. He is allowed to sit on the Lord's throne and there is a council of peace between them. Because this king and priest is divine. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9 well, first of all, it talks about Zechariah 14 and verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. In other words, it's going to be gathered back from those who took it from you and redistributed to you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem, etc., etc. This is talking about the end of all things. And the Lord will go out, verse 3, to fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, verse 6, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. 
On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. So this is a prophecy of the end, right? Now, question. In the day that Zechariah wrote this, was the Lord already the king of the earth? Yes, in the sense of his sovereignty. Absolutely. There's never been a millisecond in which the Lord was not king over the earth. And yet you see this prophecy of there is a sense in which on that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. This coalesces and, and gathers up and forms for us a complete picture then of this crowning of the priest and ascension to the throne of Yahweh, which will be consummated and fulfilled on that great day. He who is the priest that the holiest man in Israel needs will be crowned and will take his seat on Yahweh's throne. And not only will he rule spiritually and ethereally, but there is a day coming in which he, this divine person called the Lord, in Zechariah 14 and verse 9, who is also a priest and a king, will be king over all the earth. All of this is painting for us the same picture, the exact same picture painted for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 11 and verse 15, which I've alluded to many times over the last couple of months. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is painting for us the same picture painted in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. One like a son of man. A human. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is all painting the same picture of Christ ruling and reigning and his kingdom being consummated at the end of all things when the kingdoms of this world give way to the kingdom of Christ and he reigns. I'm going to show you one more interconnected thing in Daniel 7, just before what I read to you, 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Listen now to this picture of Christ Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now the Son of Man in Daniel 7 approached the Ancient of Days, right? I saw one like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Who is that describing? The Son of Man or the Ancient of Days? The Ancient of Days. That's the imagery of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7. So what Revelation chapter 1 is telling us is the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. So all of this written over centuries by three different authors, paint such a consistent picture. There is this man who is a descendant of David, a branch of David, who is a priest, and a priest who is crowned, a son of man, who is given a kingdom, who ascends to the Lord's throne. And the Lord says, my glory I share with no other, but this king and this priest is allowed to come up on the throne. Why? Because the Son of Man, who ascends to the Lord's throne, who is the branch of David, who is the crowned priest, is the Ancient of Days. This is the Son of God. The kings of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is how the common kingdom views the kingdom of Christ so often. Let us burst God's handcuffs from off of us. Never mind the rule of Christ. Let's leave Christendom in the past. Let us cast away their cords from us. Let us become progressive. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's Psalm 2. God's plan Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that the Son of God be sent into this world to take on flesh, to come to us as, a, as the branch of David, who is the priest that even the holiest one among us needs, who is to also be crowned king and to rule over us as a true and better Adam. And so there is this man, one like a son of man, this son of David, this son of Adam, who is priest and who is king. But God the Father says, come up here and sit right on my throne. Though I share my glory with no other, for you are my son. And I will exalt you and give you a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee may bow and every tongue confess. The priest who is crowned, who sits on the throne of the Lord, is the Lord. The Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days is the Ancient of Days. And so we have this mind-blowing, incredible portrait painted for us of the end of all things. When the time of patience is up, when the wheat and the weeds have grown together as long as they're going to be, and the day of judgment comes. And Christ Jesus gathers out of his kingdom all lawbreakers and evildoers. And all the kings of the earth have to bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That seventh trumpet will sound. And we will see coming on the clouds one like a son of man who is at the same time the ancient of days. And everyone will marvel at the glory of our triune God and His divine Son, who He has appointed as heir and ruler over all things. And then on that day, there will be no longer two kingdoms, but one. <laughs>